Hello and welcome to the final episode of Season 5 of The Bipolar Feminist. I am Nikita Ramkisun, and today we are talking about scapegoating. The usual trigger warnings apply. Europe and the US have, throughout their histories, sought scapegoats for their internal problems, from the manorial period, throughout feudalism, and to present-day capitalism. The scapegoats we have seen have been majority marginalized groups that had no power, economic or political, to fight back from these accusations of being the root of the problems that were caused by the white ruling and owning class. Jewish people became one of those scapegoats, and since Napoleonic times, Europe has sought to rid itself of its Jewish population, which resulted in the creation of the Israeli apartheid state. Now the continent claims it stands for the Jewish people, I don't know if they guilt for their complicity in creating the conditions that made the final solution possible, but here we are. They need to protect the Zionist state because they created it. They wanted it. And they will maintain it at all cost. The new scapegoat is immigration, being the face of brown Muslim refugees who come up against supposedly pure white values. The reason they look for scapegoats is simple. Whiteness is fragile and indefinable. It's constantly shifting and evolving to current and sometimes future needs, and white privilege evolves with it. Along with ideas of white and Western supremacy, whiteness, and assimilation thereof, comes at the cost of culture, history, language, and community. Black, indigenous, and people of the global majority are demonized as scapegoats for all things considered dangerous in society, along with everything that comes with us. Those things that whiteness values enough to steal will be stolen, appropriated to suit Western sensibilities, labelled as exotic and authentic, and sold back to us at a premium. They extract our genius while discarding us, and then blame us for the wrongs of the world. The reasoning can be a myriad things that seek to protect whiteness, white supremacy, and capitalism. One of the main reasons is fear. And not fear out of real terror, but a perceived fear, a perceived threat that their privilege is under attack. You see, there's comfort in predictability, and people have a psychological tendency to favor the status quo. For some, a preference for the status quo also means a preference for social order, the social order in which white people have more status, power, and wealth than others. This reality, still ingrained in our society since colonialism, has been consistently disrupted since the end of apartheid and to the early 2000s with the rise of multicultural kumbaya propaganda racially marginalized people were occupying the higher power, high status positions historically reserved for white people, albeit tokenistically. For the subset of white people who think that they rightfully deserve to have a higher status than racial minorities, it was unsettling and the illogical conclusion they came to was that society was becoming stacked against them and they were becoming the victims. For white people who are particularly eager to maintain the racial social order, the idea of anti-white bias implies that the entire social system is unstable and they are eager to restore it at all costs. These people might attempt to re-establish the group's position because they believe it has been damaged. One way to re-establish this order is through support for other white people who claim to be victims of racial discrimination. There's a tendency to respond negatively to people of color who claim to be victims of discrimination. People see us as complainers who use racism as an excuse for their shortcomings or playing the race card willy-nilly. White people who support a racial hierarchy, on the other hand, 
respond relatively favorably to other white people who claim to be victims of anti-white biases. And they say that they'd be more willing to help those white people out because they truly believe the slow gains of equality are suppressing their rights and favoring people of color, while simultaneously denying that racism exists. They also might respond by trying to further minimize opportunities for other racial groups, like when white people think that they're being discriminated against, many have been found to be less inclined to support affirmative action policies and implement them. Research shows that they're also more willing to support policies that help white people, like efforts to address perceived discrimination against white people. It goes without saying that where racial, educational, employment and wealth disparities persist, greater attention to bias against white people and less to bias against other racial groups would only exacerbate social inequality. And usually the most marginalized are blamed for these inequalities. That thought of supposedly becoming obsolete is rooted in the fear that, through equality, they would be treated like they have treated black, indigenous and people of the global majority. And when you add that the demographic data is used to stoke the fear-mongering fires that white people are decreasing in population, it gets worse. Racial attitudes shift when white people are exposed to the demographic data that is punted by the far right, but political attitudes shift too. And this can, in part, explain why Donald Trump found an audience with his nationalist rhetoric. A paper published in Psychological Science found that exposure to a census report that indicated a decrease in white population nudged participants to be more conservative on various policies. While the policies weren't necessarily race-related, it was found that white people became more conservative on topics like affirmative action and immigration, as well as on defense spending and healthcare reform. The threat of demographic change and the loss of status that comes with it provoked a broad sense of wanting to hunker down to conservative ideals of a white society and an inkling to blame things like immigration. A similar thing happens when psychologists remind people of their mortality. Psychologists find that the threat of death makes people more conservative and more wary of others too. And it's not that conservatives are becoming more conservative. White people of all political backgrounds in the US and elsewhere especially become more conservative in these experiments. These white people feel threatened. Some study participants were told that even though the minority-majority switch was coming, the social order would continue to be the same. White Americans would still come out on top in American society, and under that condition, the effect disappeared. That's how you know that it's a status threat fueling the effect. People may have seen electing Trump as an intervention that would stave off the status and cultural shifts that they are concerned about. But then, that's concerning too. We can't neutralize the threat of demographic change at the cost of minorities. Yet here we are. There is evidence that white people are slowly segregating themselves from diverse communities too. According to recent research, many white people have reacted to increasing exposure to non-white populations who are following their footsteps pursuing the traditional capitalist dream. The reaction is not always articulated or even intentional. In fact, most people say that they want to live in a diverse and integrated community. And they too have the dream that no one will be judged by the color of their skin. However, the data shows that as minorities move into suburbs, well, historically white ones at that, white families are making small and personal decisions that add velocity to the momentum of discrimination. They are increasingly choosing to self-segregate into racially isolated communities. So as the world diversifies, white people are increasingly choosing to live among each other. But demographic change will keep charging ahead.
White people will learn about the changes, but they won't have the opportunities to make the intensive face-to-face -face contact necessary to assuage their fears. In South Africa, more and more white people are leaving the country, moving to places like Cape Town where colonialism is still very entrenched, or staying in rural white communities that are separate from black and brown communities. Yes, there exists a place called Aranya, which is reserved for white people only, and it runs on its own rules which very much emulate that of apartheid laws. And of course, immigration and multiracialism is blamed for this. Diversity, immigration and multiculturalism are right at the heart of this sociological problem in white-led democracies, along with the new and pernicious role of social media. We are all immersed in a constant stream of unbelievable outrages perpetuated by the other side, and as multiculturalism is emphasized more and more, there emerges a reaction against it on the right, which is attractive to the authoritarian mind and also appeals to other conservatives. The way certain developments in the economy, politics and the social world have gone in the past few decades has led to working-class white people, specifically white men, feeling like their perceived authority and right to superiority have been undermined. The white men as a whole remain dominant across society, their feelings of loss and insecurity are linked to deep psychological reactions. A sort of bitter nostalgia, a sense that they are being cheated and left behind a growing conviction that they must take justice into their own hands, and this not only results in further oppression of marginalized groups, but sometimes physical harm to people of color. White fragility, or much of it, is dedicated to protecting whiteness and the assumptions that prop up racist beliefs without us realizing it. Such ideologies include individualism, the distinctly white capitalist dream that one writes one's own destiny and objectivity, and the confidence that one can free oneself entirely from bias. White people are the only ones who have the luxury of being perceived as an individual. Not to be associated with anything negative because of skin color is a privilege largely afforded to white people. Whenever a black, brown or person of the global majority does something negative, it is seen as a representation of their entire race, nationality, ethnicity, religion or culture. However, most school shooters, domestic terrorists and rapists in places rooted in white supremacy, like the US, are white. It is rare to see a white man on the street, reduced to a stereotype. Scapegoating rooted in white fragility is not an uncommon practice. We are seeing scapegoating being used in the most heinous ways in Palestine now. The militant group called Hamas, a Palestinian resistance group out of Gaza, has been used as a scapegoat and the cause of the occupational state of Israel. But do you condemn Hamas, is what we hear most often when speaking out in support of Palestine since the 7th of October 2023. The tendency to blame Palestinians collectively for violence against Israel is grimly relevant today, as Israel bombs the Gaza Strip once again. When Hamas infiltrated Israel from the Strip, there was no question that Israel would seek revenge on the group, as well as its militant wing, the Al-Qassam Brigade. As with past invasions into Gaza, Israel's leaders have insisted that the country is at war with Hamas, not the Gazan people. The Israeli occupational forces claim it does not, as a matter of policy, aim to kill Palestinian civilians, though it is a bold-faced lie and highly debatable as to how sorry they are when they inevitably do. No, they're not sorry. Innocent people of Gaza are dying at an unprecedented rate. The stories coming out of Gaza paint an unmistakable picture of collective punishment, mass death and suffering, fueling Palestinian grief and rage and perpetuating the cycle of violence that consistently sees the people of Palestine losing everything. We know that Israel is not targeting Hamas. 
The occupational forces do not want to eradicate militancy in Palestine. They want to eradicate Palestine. They want to erase Palestine. They want their supposed holy land, and they want it at the expense of the people who have been there for centuries. We know the vast majority of Israeli settlers view Palestinian people as less than human, and they have said it too. The comments on social media and the narrative of people like Itmar Ben-Gavir and Bezalel Smotrich have been clear as to Israeli intentions, flatten Gaza and either displace or kill the Palestinians who live there. The Palestinians must either leave or die, and they proudly boast of their future beach homes on the Gazan coast. Yet they insist on trying to convince the world that this is still about Hamas, scapegoating at its finest by the world's worst AI-generated propagandists. There's also the tenuous issue of making scapegoats of the powerful, so that there is one person to throw under the bus or blame for either collective crimes or to justify a more hardline stance. Those people, they said when it came to apartheid in South Africa, those people being Afrikaans white people, when it was really all white people complicit in the country's crimes and all who benefited from it. Right now, Joe Biden is being used as the scapegoat for Republican narratives of bad leadership and justifying the horrors we saw under the Trump administration, just as we are seeing Benjamin Netanyahu being blamed for the Israeli occupational forces not making headway in occupied territories in Palestine. People and members of the government are throwing him under the bus, saying that Netanyahu is too soft and there needs to be a more hardline stance on Hamas, and it is likely that he will lose the next election to a more fascist candidate. People in occupied Palestine have used him and his Likud party as an excuse for the war itself too, saying, not all Israelis. Which brings me to the not all XYZ brigade. The idea comes from a deeply rooted aversion to being associated with what they represent. The denial of personal culpability and responsibility means that, while an entire system can be blamed, Individuals within a certain demographic aim to absolve themselves, and themselves only, of responsibility for fixing the problem. This can take the form of not all men, which seeks to remove the person saying it from the overarching problem of patriarchy, and specifically male violence against women and femmes, or more recently, not all Israelis, when every settler adds to the problem of Palestinian displacement from their historic land. It scapegoats those proverbial people, but not the person insisting that it's not all of them, exempting them themselves from their role in oppression. There are so many examples of the ways in which people are scapegoated for the wrongdoings of others, but it's most often the people who are the most oppressed who get blamed, and it's part of the reason it's done. To further disenfranchise people who cannot speak in defense of themselves because their voices have been silenced, purposely. In other cases, when it's powerful people, it's to do with this power play that seeks to find somebody to sort of blame so that group activities such as genocide can be blamed on one person in particular. It's ugly and leaves the most marginalized people with no option but to resist in every way possible. Thank you for listening and for your support through these past five seasons. A huge thank you to my patrons for making this podcast possible and to everybody interviewed in this season for your time, energy and expertise. See you in February for season six. In the meantime, please follow me on TikTok under the name Nikki Starfish, support my work by subscribing to The Bipolar Feminist on Patreon or donate directly to Nikki Starfish on Coffee. Have a wonderful festive season and remember, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free.